Hi, I'm Ron Shusett, and you know my films. I co-wrote the first Alien and was executive producer. Uh, I co-wrote and co-produced the first Total Recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I was executive producer uh, Minority Report uh, with Spielberg and Cruz. I'm the next guest on On Screen and Beyond. On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. It is that time again. It's time for another episode of On Screen and Beyond, the weekly show that keeps you updated on what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies, remakes, sequels, and TV and movie DVD releases, as well as our interview segment with a guest from the movie, TV, or music industry. This is episode 238 of On Screen and Beyond. I'm your host, Brian Zemrak, and we got a great show coming your way tonight. And uh, we've got Ron Chousset, the screenwriter from Alien and Minority Report, Total Recall, and so many others. He's going to be coming here and talking to us and letting us all in on all the, the, the behind-the-scenes stuff about his career, his writing, and all that. It's going to be a great show, so stick around. That's coming up. Just got back from the California Independent Film Festival. Had a great time there. Met Don Wells, and uh, I recorded that interview. We did get a chance to do that, and we'll be playing it in a future episode of On Screen and Beyond. We also did an interview with Connie Stevens, who uh, is going to be joining us. So uh, those interviews will be coming up in the future, so I hope you'll stick around for those. And I look forward to them. And I had a lot of chance to... Very interesting conversations with uh, Don Wells. We were uh, in the lobby of the hotel, and we were uh, up till 3 in the morning talking with a bunch of us. So it was really interesting, a lot of fun. And uh, if you get a chance, go to a film festival. You can meet a lot of great people. Well, what do you say? We get right into what's coming your way as far as Remake Madness next, right here on On Screen and Beyond. Please hang up and try again. Remake Madness, well, a big screen remake of MacGyver is still moving ahead. New Line has assigned the director from the first Saw movie as the director. So it sounds like that should be a good one. And Will Ferrell and Liam Neeson have joined the cast of the big screen version of the Lego movie. I I, I still cannot figure out what they're going to do with Legos, but uh, who knows. And Charlie Brown is headed for a big screen version from 20th Century Fox, and it's heading our way in 2015. That's it for Remake Madness. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, what's coming your way as far as new upcoming movies? Upcoming new movies, well, producer Joel Silver has been uh, giving us such films as Die Hard, The Warriors, Predator, The Matrix, Lethal Weapon. Well, he's going to be producing a supernatural action movie called Sanctuary. And it's about a woman who is possessed by a demon but ends up channeling that power to fight evil forces. Sounds interesting. And uh, it's with the help of a secret organization called The Sanctuary. And you can look for Robert Downey Jr. He's going to star in and produce a film called The Judge. It's about a son trying to prove his father innocent of murdering his mother. And a biopic is in the works about Johnny Carson and the search is on now to find someone who will do justice to the title role. That's it for upcoming new movies next on On Screen and Beyond. Taking you down to Sequel City to find out what's coming away as far as sequels. <laughs> sequel City, well, Transformers 4 will be set 
in a time four years after the dark of the moon was set. And it will star Mark Wahlberg. And the Oscar-winning writer of Little Miss Sunshine going to be taking on the task of writing Star Wars 7. So that's that's almost an impossible task, but he's going to be trying to do that. And Hotel Transylvania 2 is now in the planning stages. That's it for Sequel City. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, what's coming away as far as TV on DVD? Going to tell you next, right here on On Screen and Beyond. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. TV on DVD, well, Matlock Season 8 will land on DVD on February 12th from CBS. And you can look for Gunsmoke, the seventh season, Volume 2. It's going to ride into stores on February 5th. Volume 1, we told you last week, comes out on December 11th. Also on February 5th, you can look for The Virginian, the complete seventh season in a nine-DVD collectible embossed tin set. So those are kind of neat. And that's it for TV on DVD. Next on On Screen and Beyond, we take a peek at what's coming away as far as movies on DVD. <laughs> movies on DVD, the remake of Silent Night, Deadly Night, called Silent Night. Hits Blu-ray and DVD on December 4th. And you can look for Steven Spielberg's Lincoln as it comes to Blu-ray and DVD in April. And look for Wreck-It Ralph to make his way in stores in April also. That is it for Movies on DVD. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, we're going to be talking with Ron Shusett. He's the screenwriter of Alien, Minority Report, Total Recall. Brilliant guy. He's a lot of different things he's written, and uh, he's just so much fun to talk with. He's coming up next right here on On Screen and Beyond. Today on On Screen and Beyond, my guest is a writer and producer who has given us such great hits as Total Recall, Alien, and Minority Report. It's Ron Shusett. Ron, welcome to On Screen and Beyond. Okay, glad to be here. Ron, you have written or produced some of the biggest sci-fi hits that have been made. I mean, let's face it, everybody knows Alien, especially one certain scene, which <laughs> I'm sure you know which one I'm referring to. <laughs> yeah, I heard a commentator say, uh, if you don't know the difference between a chest burster and a face hugger, you don't know anything about sci-fi. <laughs> it made me feel good. I read that the other day. Really? Well, that's the thing. Now, I know when writers write the movie, it goes through several changes sometimes, and, and it can end up a, a story that's not even close to what they originally started with. Is that the case with some of the movies that you've done, or do you seem to be able to keep the control or have the film turn out the way you saw it in your head when you originally wrote it down? You know, much more than most people have been lucky enough. One of the reasons is I have the heart of a producer, so I knew that to fight before I even 
made Alien, which amazingly was the first film got made. I've been trying for seven or eight years, wow. and how lucky can you get? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ridley Scott, before anybody knew, he was the new Kubrick and the film, you know, visual genius, uh, to get him as your director of your first movie. But I put in clauses that I must be on the set and must be either produce, share producer credit, or be executive producer so I could have some input. But I had no contractual control, just powers of persuasion mm -hmm. and the right to be there. Yeah. And uh, once I got that, of course, for the first film and contributed a lot, then it was easier to get producing positions. So I, could, I had only the power of convincing, I say, persuasion. Mm -hmm. The director has control over anybody but maybe Bruckenheimer and one or two of right. producers <laughs> in the entire industry. But I did have a right to be there, get my input, and luckily I had enough powers of persuasion. And these guys, they're the best directors, I find. It, it's so strange. The most talented and successful directors will listen to you the most because they understand if you're saying something that's going to be good for the movie. Yeah. yeah. And so I've been able to get both, those three you mentioned, with the exception of Spielberg, who's in a world of his own, uh, a plan of his own. Uh, the other two I got made exactly the way I wanted. Uh, the first Alien and the first Total Recall. And uh, I had very little to do with this remake. I'll, we'll talk about that later. Right. I didn't yeah. get that made because I wasn't uh, the producer of it or wasn't the writer of the script. I just got the story credit mm -hmm. because it was based on my ideas. So that was not similar to the first one at all. And, you know, not the way I wanted it to be, but... Uh, We'll talk about that in a, in a bit. Yeah. But first, I want to talk about answer to your question. Yeah. Um, with Spielberg, uh, I was by the time he came into the project, uh, I was already left the project, and uh, this was in I wrote the Minority Report in '95, and he didn't come into it until 2000 or 2000. Yeah, and then so I was gone from the project then, and Spielberg and Fox. Fox hired other writers. Uh, Spielberg, when he came in, I was grateful because I didn't like the way the rewrites were going on Minority Report, but Spielberg came in and saved me because although he, he had a right or a choice to let me stay on as writer, he did hire new, new additional new writers, but he went back to a lot of my ideas, uh, not enough to give me a writing credit, unfortunately, uh, but I did get executive producer, and that was pretty amazing to can't complain much on a Spielberg cruise movie. Right. <laughs> he gets it made for me when nobody was going to make it for seven or eight years. He gets it made, and I still have my uh, executive producing credit. And uh, he had a reason why. He was very uh, understanding and reasonable. He, he wanted to bring in new writers, even though he liked a lot of what I wrote and would remain. The jury of your peers decide if enough remains for you to get a credit. And if you're a producer, you have to have 60% or more. And I only had about, if you're just a writer and I wasn't a producer, I probably would have gotten a shared writing credit. But I didn't because uh, I was one of the producers, too, and not, certainly it, didn't re, it did not remain 60% of what I wrote. But whatever he replaced it with was just as good or better because he's Spielberg. So uh, that came out great by accident almost, uh, uh, where he did a different version of it. He used a lot of the first two-thirds of ours and has a completely do third act. And the movie got great reviews and grossed uh, 400 million. And uh, what more can you ask for for that? To be lucky enough that after you remove from a project, not only did you get it made, but you get it made with Spielberg. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a <laughs> it's, that's like a, a a dream that you could hope for. That Spielberg comes in 
and does the script and doesn't do everything you want, but still makes it great because he's Spielberg. Yeah, yeah. So those three, I got almost exactly the way I wanted and uh, got, did get writing credits on two of the three, producing credits on all of them, and it was a great movie that Spielberg made out of him, so I was completely thrilled with it. That's great, yeah. Those geez. three. And those are my biggest hits, and I guess, you know, there are other movies I didn't get made the way I want, and they weren't as successful, which makes me feel... Okay, because uh, if they don't shoot, if I have no control, if I can't get them to shoot what I like, and they, somebody comes in and makes a, a commercial version of it, it makes me feel okay because uh, it wasn't my fault. There's nothing I could do about it. Right, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but it must be hard when you, you have a film that, or, or a story that you've written, and you see them picking it apart, and, and you know, you're seeing it die before your eyes. Yeah, yeah, and that happens to most writers unless you... Unless you do what I did, unless you find a way right. to convince them to let you be a part of the decision-making, and from there on you're either persuasive enough, if you are, it won't die, and if you aren't persuasive enough, it will. I did a movie named Free Jack, and they shot a totally different movie, and it was a disaster. Mm. But they treated, if Nance here was good to me, because he called me in after the test went so bad, and I won't name the director because he's not a successful, nobody knows his name, that was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, he called me and he said, I was a fool. I shouldn't have let the director make those changes. I thought you wanted to keep it that way because your ego is test proved he wrecked the script. It's not the script I bought. I should have realized it. And uh, this case gotten a director like you suggested who's, who could reach a compromise. And he gave me a lot of money. He said, you go back on the location. How much can you fix closer to what you originally wrote? I said, uh, he named a figure of money, which doesn't mean anything now because this is, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. escalation, inflation. Right. At yeah. that time, the whole movie cost maybe $40 million. And he said, I'll give you $6 million additional. It's the most I can give you. And you write anything you want closer to what you had. But I couldn't. I brought it up so it was mediocre. Mm-hmm. So the test then went up so it wasn't a flop. But it really it didn't get its money quite back. It made most of its money, got mediocre reviews. And it wasn't an embarrassment. And that when, you've, when you're treated like that by the financier, he says, I made a mistake. You were right. I, I'm paying the price. I know it's your reputation. I'm going to lose a lot of money if we release this the way it is. So you can't feel too bad about that. And that was one of my bigger flops. And it had Mick Jagger and right. Anthony Hopkins in it. Yes. Yeah. So, but it turned out to be, over the years, it's amazing to me, because it was based on written material that I loved. And the written material was so strong, it survived whatever damage was done the first version they filmed, and whichever I didn't have enough, I couldn't have enough money to rewrite enough of it. I would have had to write three quarters of it instead of one third to make it a hit. Uh, yeah. uh, but uh, that was one of the, uh, you know, unfortunate things that happened. But again, you don't feel bitter when people don't step on you. Say, hey, I made a mistake. Let's try and make it good by you. Mm, yeah. And so that was a good experience, even though the movie flopped, which is another weird in between situation. Yeah. Uh, and then in most of the, I have some. Uh, you might have heard of come they're lesser known, but they become cult classics. I wrote Steven Seagal's first movie, uh, Above the Law, yes, uh, yeah. which was directed by another excellent director, Andy Davis, who went on to direct The Fugitive and a lot of other hits, who was an unknown director at that time. And he mm-hmm. directed the hell out of it. Nobody knew Steven Seagal. He put him on the map, you know, made him for an unknown, and it cost a little money and grossed a lot. So that was a good feeling and got made exactly what I wanted of it. And then I wrote another that's a cult classic that actually flopped in America when it made money in Europe in about the early 80s, a little more than 
less than medium budget called Dead and Buried. Yes. And it's now become known as a cult classic because it was the first zombie movie where you, they didn't look like zombies. They looked just like everybody else. And you didn't find out until late in the movie that these people were zombies. And I think the audiences weren't, didn't take to it in this business now with, with uh, cassette and DVD. Movie gets a second chance. If it's still not a good movie, it right. will still flop. Yeah, but but the... if it's good, they'll locate it, like Blade Runner. Right. And that happened to me in a tiny, mini school way with Dead and Buried. I was amazed how people loved it eight years later and, and became a hit indirectly. <laughs> so that one I got made the way I wanted. And uh, then there's, uh, I mentioned Dead and Buried, I mentioned Spielberg's movie, and also Alien vs. Predator. Yes. The second one was a flop. Right. 2008. I didn't work on that one. First one, I got to work on the story structure, and it was a hit. The Alien vs. Predator, the first one, was made in 2004. Mm-hmm. And then I got a shared story credit and wasn't a producer or uh, screenplay credit, but uh, I did get, uh, you know, but characters created by me yeah. and Dan O'Bannon on the first Alien, and story by me and Dan O'Bannon and the writer of the screenplay, Paul Anderson. How does it determine, I mean, you know, you get different listings, like you said. You have uh, screen story, you have writer, you have written by, you have... Executive um, producer, producer. I have a very variety of different credits on on many films. Yeah. So so when when they say you you have uh, screenplay and screen story, what's the difference between the two? Uh, Well, uh, hang on for just a second. Let me just take a drink here. Sure. That's water, not scotch. <laughs> uh, here's, a, here's a classic example is on the remake of Total Recall. Mm-hmm. I got a credit that read, and this is even a more confusing, screen story. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, it's a, I'm afraid that will confuse the issue even more. I'll tell you the difference between screenplay and screen story. Screen story means you worked on the structure only. Screenplay means you worked on the script only, unless it, you get both then it's screen, you worked on the screenplay and the script. The screenplay are the words, the dialogue that they say, and the actual shots. Mm-hmm. Story is the structure. So uh, there are two different credits. On many on Total Recall, uh, the first Total Recall, I got both, uh, screen story and screenplay. On Alien, uh, I got uh, screen story, uh, and uh, as well as executive producer. Um, and on, uh, let's see, Minority Report, I got neither writing credit, but I got executive producer and co-presenter. Uh, you know, a, a Ronald Shusett, Gary Goldman, uh, Cruz Wagner production with Tom's company yeah. over the credit. It means above the title, so it's your production credit, so it says you did it, you initiated the project. Uh, and almost all of those I got above the title credits. Alien, Total Recall, First Total Recall, and Minority Report, I got above the title credits, meaning... I didn't just what wasn't a hired gun. I initiated the projects. Hmm. It, it did, like you say, it is very confusing. <laughs> but, yeah. but as long as the money comes in, right? That's yeah, the main yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I started to give an example, and I will finish it. Total Recall. Uh, it was a remake 20 years later. And they, 20 years go by, and studios, and often they usually have a right in some way with their contracts, or sometimes not. But I was not invited for any input, uh, so I didn't work on the remake of Total Recall. And, uh, however, since they, the Writers Guild protects you in these things to a certain degree that studios can't overrule, and that's what happened in this case. Though they didn't necessarily want me to work on the script, and I didn't really work on it, the thing was that they used, let's say, 
the original was based on a short story. Uh, Philip Dick Shorey's So Was Total Recall, and so was Minority Report, okay? Yeah. First Total Recall was based also on a Philip K. Dick story. But then when we wrote the screenplay, we invented ideas that were not in Phil Dick's short story in the first movie, and were on the screen. So I got screenplay and screen story, because and then suggested by or inspired by Phil Dick. Uh, when it came to this one, I wasn't, didn't work on it at all, but fortunately for me, I ended up with a credit on it, which Sony was fine with. They didn't begrudge me that. Uh, after the movie was shot, they realized I was entitled to this, and the Writers Guild gave it to me. They used so many ideas that were not in the Phil Dick story, but were in the first movie. Therefore, there are ideas, and they were in the remake. So they had to give me a screen story credit, even though I did no work on the movie. Hmm. And uh, it, it was uh, a mixed blessing for me, because... It wasn't as successful as we all thought it would be because they chose, uh, who knows, these things. I don't think Spielberg himself can predict when he's going to have a hit or a miss. Right. And uh, I thought it might succeed even though they had to play it. They had almost no humor in it. They did it more straight-ahead Hitchcockian with action, mm-hmm. and we did it with a lot of humor because that's Arnold's signature. Yeah. So they really couldn't do it with all that humor unless they had... They didn't have Arnold. It was t- too late. He was governor or retired, whatever, and now he's back again. But, of course, when they did this, so they wrote it for the cast they had, which is Colin Farrell. And I think what happened, my only explanation was that why maybe it didn't make more money than it did. I think the audience was expecting something closer to the original. Yeah. Either even young people, I find in their 20s, they'll talk to me, oh, I love Total Recall. And I'm shocked because... That's what cassette does for you, too. Everybody has their own screening room now. Mm-hmm. Yep. Instead of the moguls in early Hollywood, they just rent a cassette or rent a DVD, and your movie goes on. I'm amazed how many 20-year-olds love my films like Total Recall. Oh, and yeah. the first day, they weren't even born when they did the right. first day. And we're <laughs> 10 years old, as you Total Recall. So uh, I think that what the audience expected was something closer to the first Total Recall, and that may be the only reason it didn't do as well as we wanted. They they were surprised and they were annoyed because they didn't get the movie they expected. Not necessarily a bad movie, but not the one that they had in their mind and they uh, were fans of. These mm-hmm. fans, are, as we know, are fanatical and they're, thank God for them. Yes. And so uh, I did get a credit on that, yet didn't really work on it. And it wasn't very successful, but I'm glad they made it and I made money from it. And it reminded people of my career because I, I previous to that coming out this year, I hadn't made a movie in eight years, which was the first Alien versus Predator. So it felt good for me to remind people that I'm still around, still kicking, and ideas that I created so many years ago are still good enough for somebody to invest $100 million and more on to make a new movie of them. <laughs> yeah, geez. Now, of all the movies you've done, hmm? is there one that's your favorite? Oh, yeah. It could only be one answer to that, the first Alien. Because uh, Ridley, I say, uh, he, 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 without him... There's no one that could have done it as well, not only not better, but I doubt, uh, as later years proved, he is the closest uh, now uh, since the prime of Kubrick. I think everybody feels he's the greatest living visual stylist. And he had not only made one movie before that, and it wasn't science fiction, and it wasn't successful, and that was just a miracle. Because every major director turned it down. They didn't want to do the first thing. They thought it sounded crazy. And Ridley loved it. And made it in a way that, like I said, not only could nobody do it better, I don't think any director, 
I could have ever wanted or wished, no matter how successful, even Spielberg himself, at, and I don't think he, he would have done it as artistically amazing as Alien was, mm -hmm. because Spielberg is a commercial guru, and Ridley is both. He's commercial, but he's also, he, as Ridley admires him, I know, was, was one of the greatest living directors. Uh, Spielberg admires Ridley. But, and then we had Giger, who designed it, and he had never designed a movie. He was a painter, a surrealist Swiss artist that painted on canvas. And Dan O'Bannon met him somewhere in Switzerland, and we hadn't even written the script. And said, we got to let this guy design our creature. And while we were writing the movie, we would send him pages, and he would articulate what it should look like from our description uh, on the page. And what was Way your first before the movie was even bought or financed. And what was your first reaction when you saw these paintings? Was it like, I know that this is what I thought? <laughs> yeah, this is exactly what Dan I said, this is amazing. We got, and we reduced them to 8 by 10s and uh, he had drawings he'd send to us. We reduced them and put them in the script exactly the moment they occurred. Mm -hmm. And you know, we didn't have a buyer. We were unknown guys. We didn't have an agent. We didn't have an attorney. We didn't have anything. Dan uh, had made one low-budget film before then in film school, uh, not, not even commercially, called Dark Star. But Roger Corman bought it from him and did release it in some theaters. And again, that was a college project. Neither of us had any credibility. And uh, they didn't think they should hire Giger because it was too disgusting as drawings. They said, oh, my God, this won't work on the screen. It will repel people. And it wasn't until Ridley came in a year later uh, that he said, i got to have this guy. And Fox said, well, okay, if the director believes in that much, we'll have to go with him. And he ended up winning an Oscar mm -hmm. for, for special effects. And he designed the, the, all the creatures, the alien boomerang ship, remember that? Mm -hmm. that flew? Yeah. He designed that. He even designed the landscapes that looked like they were outdoors, but they were really indoors, faking for outdoors, and a surreal other planet landscape. He even designed that. Jeez. So, uh, and the guy they didn't want won an Oscar for just what they hired him for, and they they were gracious. Fox said, as soon as they saw the sets, after Ridley said, I have, please, you have to hire this guy. When they came to England, where we shot it, the, uh, the heads of Fox here in America, they looked at the sets and they said, oh my God, you were right, Ridley was right. How could we, uh, usually you don't, I can't I often remember studios being this gracious. Adam Lodge Jr., he looked around, he said, these sets, they should be in the Museum of Modern Art. How wow. could we have been blind to it? <laughs> They're just brilliant. And they, and, they looked, and they saw some of the footage we shot, early tests. This is amazing. Uh, we would have destroyed uh, our best, one of our best assets had we not, you and Ridley, persuaded us to use this guy. Yeah. Wow. So that was just when all the elements come together. Some of them not of your doing. I mean, yeah, we discovered Ridley, I, I, uh, Giger, but we didn't get him in the made. We didn't get him hired. It was Ridley that got him hired. Yeah. And Ridley we never heard of. Fox got Ridley. And so, uh, and Sigourney was an unknown. She don't, it was her first movie. She did one off-Broadway, and she was cast by her screen test. Mm -hmm. and, and again, they went to Candy Bergen, Jane Fonda, all the big female leads. Then they wanted to do it. So they end up with Sigourney. She ends up being a major star and a multiple Oscar contender and winner. Oh, yeah. I wrote this in The Mist, and I think Working Girl, she won one Oscar, or supporting, she was nominated for another. She became the, you know, the most high-profile, certainly, uh, sci-fi visual leading lady. Yeah. And again, she was a total unknown that screen-tested on 60 people, and they picked her, and we just got the right one. Yeah. It's funny how things like that, I mean, everything just came together and came up with the perfect film. Yeah, yeah, and and it, 
very rarely does that happen. That's why it stood the test of time of 30 years and more, 33 years. It's just everybody was the perfect person, and the studios, got, God bless them, they don't often do that when you get crazy stuff like this. They don't let you make it exactly the way you want. Right. And uh, that was a miracle. It made my career and launched certainly Ridley's career as a, oh, yeah. as a legendary filmmaker. Yeah. Now, take us into the the writing of this of the story of alien um were you just sitting around talking about it or did you first write a whole outline of what you were you know what you wanted it to be or how did that come about uh, it came about it's a great question it came out it's a pretty legendary story i've heard ridley talk about it on the makings of alien there's probably been five or six or seven over 30 years different makings of alien in which they interview all of us and uh, me and dan o'bannon we we created it together. But Dan started it. I didn't even know Dan when he started it. He was just graduated from film school, and uh, I saw this little college movie he made uh, that I mentioned earlier, Dark Star. Mm-hmm. And I said, my God, this guy is like a potential future genius. He co-wrote it and also designed the effects on a, on a college budget level. And I thought, gee, I, you know, I have wanted to do science fiction. It costs a lot. This guy maybe can help me design it inexpensively and help me with script ideas if he's this talented on this. And so I contacted him through seeing this film and finding out where he was. They gave me a place where I could reach him. And uh, he said, well, look, uh, everybody thinks they're a writer because Dan is no tact, you know. Like Joe Biden, he's a writer. He said, I don't know you. I don't know. Send me anything you've written, and I'll tell you if I want to work with you and what you want to work with me on, what you have in mind. They sent him a script. He said, you're good. When a few people I get read these scripts and I grow, most of them are lousy. Come on over and let's talk about what you want to do with me. So I went to his. He was living, you know, starving little attic there near USC, and he said, "Okay." I said, I, "I've got the rights to this story." I thought I forgot to mention on the phone. I said, "I have the rights," which turned out to be total recall, and that wasn't the title of the story. I uh, said, "Phil Dick." I read every one of Phil Dick's stories. So I told him which one it was. I, I love that story. I know it by heart. Okay, come over. You have the rights to it? I said, yeah, I have a paper in my pocket. I'll show you. I've, I've got the rights to it. And nobody ever heard of Phil Dick in. Nothing, no movie had ever been made at that time based on Phil Dick's work. Mm-hmm. But Dan was a sci-fi nerd, so he came over. I came over to his place. I, he said, I definitely want to work on you. There's no, there's no structure, no structure in the third act, because that's what Phil Dick usually does. He writes a first act, and he seldom has, a, let alone a third act. He usually doesn't have a second act. He said, we're going to have to invent two-thirds of it. I said, yeah, that's why I haven't started. I knew I needed somebody brilliant to help me translate this into a full-length story for the screen and a screenplay. He said, I'm sure I can help you with that. He said, let me suggest something else. First, I wrote, I want to do that, but it's hard to do that on as cheap a budget. We can make it cheaper than the studios. We can design it for independent, but it's never going to be able to be minuscule. I have something that I think can be as good I have the same thing. I have one-third, just what you have in that short story. I have one-third of the Phil Dick pages. They really ended one-third of the way through the movie that we eventually made, and then we had to make up the rest. Right. He said, I have something one-third written. It's an original. It's not based on a story. I created it. I can't get any of my film school uh, comrades and peers to give me an idea. I can't get past page 29. I'm stuck. And I, 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 said, I said, I'll give it to you. You can't take it with you because I don't know you. He said, read it right here, right now. Can you read it? I said, sure. Take what it'll take, a half hour, 20 minutes, an hour. So I read these 29 pages. And here's the amazing part. They were exactly the first 29 minutes 
of alien that you see on the screen. And that's a miracle. You didn't have it either. And I said, it's brilliant, Dan. It's amazing. He said, yeah, but I'm stuck. And nobody can seem to unstuck me. Now, I can see from the work that you did, and he said, uh, I think you've got the firepower to help me get the second and third act to this. So we work on that first, agree to this, and then I'll help you work on Total Recall. And what was weird, both those things happened, and right then, both movies were born in that instant. Wow. We finished Alien, we got that made, and then we got hot enough, we got Total Recall made, they both became classics, and they both made huge amounts of money, and, you know, paid, I paid for the Phil Dick story of rights only $1,000 in 1976. Jeez. Now his stories sell for $1 million. $1 million. <laughs> It's like a Van Gogh. Yeah. And so nobody heard of him. Now I, owed a th- I paid 1000 and I owe 9000 That was a deal of 1000 down. And, of course, when I made money on Alien, I paid the other 9000 So in perpetuity, I owed the, owed the rights to that Phil Dick story for $10,000. And it became so successful. I'm skipping ahead many years. It's like a time travel story. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of shocking events if you, when you just bluntly look, here's what happened. Because now, after getting a Total Recall made and becoming a huge success, and then uh, after uh, Blade Runner, which wasn't a box office success initially, but became a all-time classic, uh, Phil Dick's story, he, he died before that was released. In, that was in 82, which is after Alien came out. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Total Recall got made in 1990, and after Total Recall and Blade Runner, the right, we got the rights to Minority Report, another Phil Dick story. But we had to pay a half a million dollars for it. Wow. <laughs> and the studio, of course, paid most of that, so it was easy because I had credibility. Yeah. So the same thing that I bought years earlier, 10, 15, whatever it was, for $10,000, uh, we put up 50000 up front, uh, my partner and I, against half a million. And then we, then we wrote the script, went to the studio, and the studio put up 450 balance, and they made the movie. And then we tried to buy another Phil Dick story, and the price went up to a million dollars. Great story. So, I mean, uh, that's, uh, uh, that whole sequence of events sounds like it only is almost like uh, fiction or fantasy. Yeah, wow. How did you come up with the idea of the alien bursting out of the chest of the astronaut? My co-writer, Dan O'Bannon, had written the first 29 pages before there was any chest burster or face hugger in it, and he was stuck there. And uh, he said, uh, hearing my ideas and reading scripts I had done without him, he felt that between he and I, we could come up with the balance of the movie, starting right after so-called page 29, where they left the ship and are exploring and go into the bowels of the alien boomerang ship, and they find something there. And he didn't have created what they found there, but he knew it had to be some form of the monster and how it could get on the ship in a way nobody ever saw, or it would have no impact. It'd just be like an outdated movie, uh, old-time B-movie, and this was some sensational, astounding thing that would amaze everybody how it, what they found on there had to do with the monster, how the monster got on the ship, and what they dealt, how they dealt with the creature. And so we started, uh, he had script form, 29 pages, but we started from there in an outline form. And we worked weeks and weeks and maybe months, I don't know. And we were getting closer, we thought. We couldn't quite figure out what this breakthrough was. And uh, finally, since 
Dan was sleeping on my couch. He was so broke. My wife was supporting both of us, two-room apartment. My wife and I slept in the bedroom. Dan slept on the couch. So I, at one point I said, Dan, I don't know. I said, I, I thought I, I could help you do this. I hope I can, but I'm exhausted. I'm going to go to sleep. We'll start tomorrow. So I went in his room, went to sleep, and I'm saying, I'm pretty sure it was not a dream. It was my subconscious mind tackling the problem. But when you sleep, you're closer to your subconscious. So uh, most, a lot of people say you dreamed it, but I don't think it's, I think it's uh, a little simpler, simpler than that, or maybe more complex. You didn't just dream it. Your brain is working. I'm saying, how can this get? What can happen? What can happen while I'm asleep? Because I woke up with the answer even though I was sound asleep before I had it. Mm -hmm. I ran the other room, woke up Dan. I said, Dan, I think I have the key to it. I think I know what happens, what they find in that, in the bowels of that alien ship, what it has to do with alien, how he gets on the ship, okay, in a way that will shock everybody. So I said, there's the egg thing, which everybody saw in the movie. It maybe been there thousands of years, but there's still somehow like fungus or something that's growing inside it, so it's moving, some kind of a embryonic uh, seed of life, something in there. And they could see it through a transparent egg. This is what I came up with in my dream. And he kind of puts his face to see what it is. And the egg opens up and this thing jumps on his face. It's now called the famous face hugger. Right. It didn't exist. Puts a tube down his mouth and inserts something in him. But it's keeping him alive. They put him, tack him back on the ship, put an x-ray on him, and they can't see what's doing to him because it's spits out ink like an octopus does blocking close, so you can't see. They don't want you to see naturally what we know. Oh, yes, it's growing inside there because it's a sci-fi movie. That's what's going on. That's why there's a reason they won't let them, the creature is built so you can't x-ray it and see what's happening. And at that point, we know that this creature has to be breed, come to fruition in a short time because they have a very quick life cycle. Like a, It might be an insect-like and it comes to life and comes out of his body. But we debated, should he operate on him? How should it come out of his body? And we both sat there, and then Dan said, no, what if we don't operate him? What, what if it just comes bursting out of his chest? And this is about 40% of the way through the movie. Mm -hmm. And I just looked in horror. I said, Dan, that's it. That's the movie. I, and we, we, we were so shocked at our own creation because we knew, uh, I mean, I guess that's the... The, the nexus of creative force. At that second, we both knew, not that your dreams always work out the way you think or you're even conscious. Right, yeah. We knew it was going to be something amazing. The movie was going to get written, probably get made, and everybody talk about it for years. In oh, just those yeah. few seconds, we, we all felt that way. Yeah. And, I mean, we were all, uh, me and Dan and our creation. Yeah. And it Jeez. took us only about six weeks to finish the structure and outline for him. Dan had the first 29 pages in writing. We outlined what I just said. And it was easy after that because we knew the creature had to keep changing. We used as a model uh, the caterpillar and the butterfly. It had to keep evolving, and the audience would get bored. It'd come out of his chest and would gradually grow larger until it was frightening, seven feet, seven feet tall. Yeah. And start the little thing, and it'd grow. And that way you'd never get tired of it. And we'd keep evolving. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, uh, the rest was so easy to write. His craftsmanship was responsible. The only inspiration that we needed for the whole balance of it after that was the robot's head, which was a brilliant idea where they, uh, Ash is a robot. And that was the only piece. The rest was craftsmanship after the facehugger and the chestburster. We just needed craftsmanship. We knew we needed something amazing after the 
chest burster, so it would be the only thing you talked about. So we came up with the idea that Ash is a robot and is trying to help the alien, because that's his mission for the mm-hmm. corporation, even if people die, to bring it back alive. Yeah. And then his head gets knocked off, and you think, oh, my God, that's just a bloody scene. And instead, we hook him back up, and he talks to you. His head talks to you. And that was such an amazingly needed piece of information that carried the whole third act. So you, there wasn't any place where you didn't see something during the first, second, and third act that didn't amaze you. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that, it just fell into place, and we got financing. That's the weirdest thing of all. We got financing, I don't know, quickly, almost immediately. Jeez. We had no agent, like I said, nobody, manager, no nothing, no background. And uh, we just walked into the right door. First of all, we were going to make it for a tiny budget. Yeah. And Roger Corman, Dan had worked with Roger Corman. You know how many people he started Peter Bogdanovich, I mean, right, Francis yeah. Ford Coppola, uh, Jonathan Demme, who did Silence of the Lambs, mm-hmm. uh, Ron Howard, there's infinite, Cameron even. All these people were launched their careers by Cameron. So I guess we're in good company because we gave the script to, to uh, 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 lost my track for a minute, uh, the guy that started all these things. Uh, I, I forgot, I said his name. Roger Corman. Ago. Pardon me? Roger Corman. Roger Corman. And so many years ago, it was 33 years ago. We gave it to him. He said, yes. That shows how good his instincts. He said, I love it. I want to do it. How much do you need? And we said, oh, well, we, could, we figured it out. Remember, it was 33 years ago. We figured we could make it for about $700,000, which we could have easily then. Mm-hmm. The average studio movie at that time was, I think, $7 million. Yeah. So we needed one-tenth, $700,000. He said, done. So we were about to drop the contracts and make it as a low-budget movie when accidentally Dan's friend from film school ran into somebody, uh, he, Dan introduced me to his film school, and he said, well, I heard you and Ron, word spreads. He told his film school cronies about it, even though they were graduated. I got this great new film, I partnership run, she said, uh, it's a great script, script. I finally finished my script that I've been begging people for help, it's done, it's ready, we're ready to sell it. So he said, I hear you have this great script, can, we, can I read it? And we said, well, we already have the money from Roger Corman. He said, oh, I can get it from a major studio. So Dan knew this guy and trusted him. He said, why? He said, I have reason to tell you, I can get it immediately. Just give me two days. And he said, okay, that's fair enough. Don't do anything with Roger Corman. Just give me 48 hours, and I'll prove to you I can get the money from a major studio. <laughs> and he did. Jeez. And uh, I guess he knew they were looking for something like this. He knew Fox was looking for it. And he knew a couple producers there, and they had credibility, even though he didn't. He was friends with them. And so he said, okay, uh, I got the money. He said, And we said, well, look, we can't. He said, I can't tell you. If I tell you who it is, you cut me out. So you got to negotiate your deal. What do I get if I have you, if you have the money in 48 hours? Uh, I show you from a major studio. Okay, we negotiated a deal. I think he got 1% of the profits, a 15,000, remember the long title, $15,000 fee and associate producer credit. Because mm-hmm. you know, we just told him about it. He didn't contribute anything except a lot. If he could bungle into the financing, that's a lot. So we, he said, okay, or draw this, I'm going to type this up and leave blank who's going to finance it. You agree to these terms, providing I get the money in 48 hours, and leave blank, and I'll write in the company, okay? He said, fine, that's fair. <laughs> There's another story. I don't know the whole thing. I guess our whole careers were littered with stories, as real-life stories, as fantastical or weird yeah, as I our movies. Looked. Because uh, he comes over, we sign this contract, and he fills in the name. 20th Century Fox, Brandywine Productions is the production company, uh, three partners, Walter Hill, David Geiler, and uh, uh, Gordon Carroll. Yeah. And one was at 
Oscar-winning producer a few mm-hmm. years earlier. Yeah. The up, two were up-and-coming young writers and directors, David Geiler and Walter Hill. Hill went on to become a successful director. He said they have a deal with Fox. Fox is looking for the dark side of uh, Star Wars because they financed Star Wars and was already, I think, at then maybe already the highest-grossing movie in history. Right. So they're looking for the the dark side of this, the uh, you know the horror side of this. And they've read hundreds of scripts, even. And they and this one is the best one I've ever read. And I think these guys will agree. I'll give it to them. He gave it to them. They agreed. We negotiated a deal with them, and they got all the money from Fox in a matter of weeks. Jeez. And that's how the whole. Thing. And we had we told Corman. He said, "Fine, God bless you. If you could make it on a on a it was a budget it was a lot for that day. It was yeah. like fifteen million. <laughs> Two times, twice as much as the average major budget." Mm-hmm. He said. More power to you. I'm glad I've started a lot of people's careers. I'm glad you came to me first, and he wasn't angry at all. He said, "I, I want to be in your good graces, and you'd be a fool not to do it for uh, seven million. When you, uh, for for seven hundred thousand, you do it for seven million. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's been mentioned recently too. I don't know. Maybe some book uh, forward. I guess Dan O'Bannon who passed away. I think you know a year and a half or so ago. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book on screenwriting uh, before without me, just himself on the screenwriting guide the mechanics. And Roger Corman wrote to Ford and recounted this exact story. Yeah, yeah. Were, were you always interested in uh, uh, horror and, and space and Yes, I, I, I remember, uh, first of all, growing up reading the classics, Jules Verne, Edgar Allan Poe, H.C. Wells. Those were my favorite classic writers, mm-hmm. science fiction, fantasy. Even if it was horror, it wasn't murderers or detectives. It was weird flying things of Edgar Allan Poe, the Pasch of Amontillado, the Pit and the Pendulum. Yes, so yes. clearly, very early, those things seared their way into my brain waves. Mm-hmm. And I loved them. I was fascinated by them. I had no idea that I would grow up to be a writer or what, Dennis, is in grade school yes. and, uh, and continuing through high school. And you can see it because Alien is very much Edgar Allan Poe-esque, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. And... Total Recall is very much Jules Verne. One is science fiction action adventure, and the other is horror, contained unthinkable horror, The Mask of the Red Death, uh, things like that. So both those, you can see how they've infiltrated my brain and influenced my writing combined with, then I would read for pleasure these tiny little dime, dime, maybe $5 and $2, I don't know, these little tiny paperback pulp that that uh, Phil Dick wrote all his stories in before he, any movies were made. And I devoured those. Uh, science fiction, fantasy, uh, uh, the few future, what it looks like. And these short stories, I just in, in, ingested them, ingested them. Hmm. And so that, combined with my earlier things of the classic writers and those things, formed the basis of all the future things I was to write, some of them which I even acquired the rights to later, of course. Huh. Yeah. Such as Phil Dick's stories. I read those then. Right, yeah. When I was a teenager. Hmm. And I bought I bought the rights to them years later. Yeah. That's the Minority Report and Total Recall. Yeah. Now, when you see Hollywood making remakes, I mean, they, they make them constantly. And, of course, yeah, yeah. now they've made one of your movies. Do you think that they should make remakes or... No, no, I don't. Uh, separate from this one made for mine, so I can separate the personal from right. what I feel about it, what my gut tells me and what my head tells me, too. They, they've gone too much towards, okay, I'll take no risks, so I'll do a remake, and they make them religiously, as soon as 20 years go by, they make everything sometimes shorter than oh, yeah. that. Shorter than and that. the yeah. audiences 
as Tom Hanks said, I think this is why it's getting to be not a good idea. He said people are now tired. For a while, they ate them up because there's such favorite films of theirs. They wanted to see a new one when remakes made. But finally, they've gotten so much overboard on remakes and so many sequels and uh, so many reboots and reimagining of this and that, and they're getting away from what they used to do, looking for just what are the best ideas. They don't have to be pre-sold. So financially, because the conglomerates now own the industry, not the people that invented it, like Jack Warner and and Samuel Goldwyn and and, uh, David Oselznik and... uh, uh, What's his name? That one uh, I forgot uh, from MGM, uh, worked for Louis B. Mayer. Uh, an all-time great producer. Cecil B. DeMille? Uh, not DeMille, but it was, uh, yeah, put my mind, Thalberg, Irving Thalberg. These guys invented the movie business. They could look at it, look at a script, and know what it was good about. They didn't need to buy the rights to something proven. And today's people, they say, oh, well, it's proven. Well, sometimes, and lately I would think that, the biggest risk you can take is not making a creative, but taking something everybody has seen in someone for and. As Hanks, continuing my quote from Tom Hanks, I bother a month ago, he read this. He said, what the studios don't understand is when audiences go into a theater, they want to be surprised. And that means not a remake, a sequel. They want new ideas. Yeah. And, and, and whenever they do that, <clears throat> they usually do even bigger mm-hmm. box office when they get a creative new idea. Because even cause everything started well, with the first film. Even the ones that get sequels made, they had to start with the first film somewhere. That nobody right. knew about. Yeah. So it's a fallacy to rely on these things and think they'll help you be a success. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ron, this is fascinating. Um, I'd like to finish up with two questions. Okay. That everybody seems to think is probably the toughest questions I ask. So. Yeah. <laughs> Can I just say one thing before you do this? Sure. I don't want to malign the remake. In my case, of Total Recall. Yes. No, I understand. Not to imply. Sometimes they change it a lot. Usually they do. Sometimes they make it similar. Either way, I don't, I'm not in favor of remakes. I, it benefited me personally, but I don't want to degrade it and say, okay, it ne- didn't necessarily fail because it was a bad movie. Mm-hmm. It's just the audience were fans of it. I sent this earlier, but I want to make this clear, so I'm not insulting those people, the filmmakers of my remake. Right. It wasn't that it was a bad movie. It's just audiences maybe were pining. In this case, that one movie, which is an all-time classic favorite of theirs i read over and over of audiences of fanboys they wanted to see something it was the opposite of what i just said you either had to make, find a way to make it more unusual or at least something in the vein of what they saw and they chose to do a different approach the serious approach yeah and i think having made the decision made a remake they at least had to give them something in the vein of the first one and this one was done with a different tone and i don't think it failed because of that I think it maybe it's just that they wouldn't embrace it as a serious movie like they had as a comedic, even yeah. if they had done the same structure, which is about seventy percent similar our structure. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to badmouth that particular uh, yeah. you know yeah, story and say yeah. it was terrible. You know they did their best to make a good movie out of it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's finish up with the final two questions. Yeah. As I said, this is something that everybody seems to think is the hardest questions, but it's more of a personal thing. Gets us away from your movie making and everything. As far as television, do you watch television for one thing? And I do, so, but I only watch. There's certain shows, and those few I'm really addicted to. I love them, and I guess I don't give others until I they start and I watch a few episodes. 
until I become really involved in them. Yeah. What's your favorite ones? What's your favorite well, TV I shows? Well, I say right now, I'm, I don't know if you've heard of this, it's on network. It's fairly new. It's a sensation for the last several months. Homeland? Yes, yes. Oh, I mean, we're just, we can't, last week we couldn't believe what happened and we have no idea what's going to happen. It's a, it's a series, but they broke and then they renewed it. And I mean, every week, it's, it's the one, I don't know how many Emmys, and nobody had ever heard of it before this, and it's the writings, and I don't watch it because other people do. I watched it before I, the first one came in the air <clears throat> because I had read good reviews, <clears throat> and it's just amazing. That's my favorite show right now. Mm-hmm. What and about then I past? do like, uh, I like uh, uh, comedy. Uh, 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 well, what, I can't think of the name. It's a comedy series. Um, and I, I, you know, my mind is not <clears throat> on remembering some of these names. Uh, Modern Family. Ah, yes. And that's one Emmy after Emmy. Yes. And I don't watch it because of it. It's just so great. I, I mm-hmm. turned to my wife and I said, it's a simple secret. The writing is so great. That's why these shows, Homeland and Israel, hit. Right. They're written so brilliantly. Yes. Yeah. Another one, brand new, I love, by the people that created Glee, is The Modern, The New Normal, which mm-hmm. is a brilliant comedy, a social satire. And, uh, I, I keep coming back. When I see great writing, it's not because I'm a writer. I see people, everybody responds with just the difference. Of course, the cast can be great, but if it isn't on the page, like they say, it won't be on the stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, now, you mentioned uh, Dead and Buried was uh, a, a, a zombie movie. Right. Uh, are you into the, the zombie? I hate the zombie movies. You hate the, the ones uh, now? Because <laughs> I'm sick of them. I don't I thought. I thought... Zombieland was an exception. It was done very well. Mm-hmm. But I'm t- I'm, I don't understand why there's these endless zombie movies. It seems like it's OD'd now. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, a- I know the classics, the ones that Val Luton did in the 30s. Uh, I Walk with a Zombie, White Zombie. I like mm-hmm. those, and I like uh, Z- Zombieland, the new one with, with um, Bill Murray as a cameo. Yes. And... Uh, uh, the guy that played the bartender in Cheers, I can't think uh, of his name. Uh, uh, Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson. Yes. That was a terrific zombie movie. But now it's like everything, TV and movies, way too much zombie. Brad Pitt just started a zombie movie, uh, and I haven't seen it, but, you know, they're concerned about it because it seemed to be over OD'd on zombies. Yeah. I wish they'd get off zombies and zam- vampires. Vampires, yeah, werewolves. We need to go, <laughs> even if it's go to werewolves, go to something different. Yeah. Frankenstein, because there's too much zombie movies, I think. We've mined that out. Yeah, yeah. No, they get carried away. What about movies? What are your favorite all-time movies? Boy, uh, I can name them quickly, but I guess I sound like a, I sound like a sheepdog or a lap, because they're what move, what move. I guess my generation, many years older than the present generation, they maybe don't seem to be steeped, involved in film history as much as I am. But... Starting at the top, I mean, you know, uh, Casablanca, Classic. of course, and Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I love, and I don't hear mentioned all the time, great, but I love it, is the Ben-Hur, the remake mm-hmm. in the 1950s. Yeah. Uh, of course, they did it in the 20s, too. And uh, those kind of movies are all-time great movies, even though far afield from what I do now. But I'm glad you mentioned that, because I'm doing a new sci-fi. And I, the reason I like these movies, which is... Found in short supply, they have something short supply in modern science fiction movies. It's character development. Mm. Now, in the old days, when they did these great all-time action or outdoor adventure, they also had equal character amounts of character. Right. And very few. Sometimes when they get that in with the special effects and the action, the box office is unlimited, as they do in uh, Hunger Games, 
the Avengers, uh, the new Spider-Man. They, they, got, they got the message. Okay, it can't be just mindless action and uh, characters that you have to care about them, be in jeopardy, care when they live or die. Yeah. Once you get that and you have the special effects in the action, then you have a great movie and a great sci-fi movie. So what I'm done, what I'm working on right now, my brand new movie, uh, there's two I'm developing at the same time because they're once a huge budget, but two different writers. Yeah, Before. tell us about that. <laughs> okay, first one's a big budget, and uh, it's what I got my inspiration from. It's not... It's, it's an all-time classic generation earlier movies, different films, uh, such as Gunga Din and the Alamo, that mm-hmm. were, were, as I say, they had all those characters and rip-roaring adventure. So I patterned this movie on those classic earlier era movies, but transformed them into sci-fi by moving them 800 years into the future. Mm-hmm. So they're in outer space mining and uh, asteroids for riches that are there now in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. So that's one of my uh, big budget, the only big budget, uh, which I've just finished. Uh, and, of course, it jams with futuristic action and special effects, but you care about the characters. Their relationships are interesting, the ones you hate. You want to see them get their just due. Right. The yeah. others you want, my God, you've got to live through this. And I, I've got that ready now. I've been working on it many uh, months and months, I'd say a year and a half. And it's going to cost a lot of money, but since I know it's hard to get $100 million plus, this will be probably about 125 uh-huh. With a second writing partner of mine, I've been working on a modest budget, uh, contemporary supernatural horror. Basically, it's a take on the classic Jekyll and Hyde. That goes back to where I said people are tired of uh, zombies mm-hmm. and vampires. And what is what hasn't been that I've seen recently is Jekyll and Hyde. Right. I'm sure... When they start turning to that, if this is what I'm doing with success, they'll be doing Jekyll and Hyde movies. Yeah. But so it's it's is Jekyll and Hyde, but it's it's a different wrinkle as I always try to do. And and uh, for example, in this Jekyll Hyde movie, those contemporary times, not futuristic and not the period that it was written. And I think they've made it four or five times earlier era, but they haven't done it in ten or fifteen years. They did it with Frederick March, Spencer Tracy, all classic right. movies. Yeah. But not I can't remember the last ten or twelve or fifteen years. So I said, okay, that's what I'll do, but I, of course I want it to be different. So the thing that's different about my Jekyll and Hyde is Mr. Hyde, when he's in his bloodlust brain, he can't grasp the difference, and he thinks he, and he's trying to kill uh, Dr. Jekyll because he doesn't understand it's the same bo- they share the same body he's and he'll be kill killing himself. himself. Right. <laughs> so that's my twist on it, and it gets eerier and eerier, and, and I think that can be done for probably $15 million. So I've got those two movies I'm very high on, and I, I got them both finished basically at the same time because I was working on them contemporarily, and as I said, two different writing partners. And now I can go to the ones that are appropriate for $125 million, and those financing sources would be more appropriate for $15 million. Mm-hmm. So I, I think if I get either of them made, it'll be an important rebirth of my career because the last movie I got made was eight years ago, uh, Alien versus Predator, the first one, where I got the story credit on, yep. and characters created by. Wow, I'm just amazed at that, that hearing your stories and everything. That's yeah, uh, yeah. That's well. This, this, I want people to know out there that are listening that I'm still doing things, and I'm looking for the financing, and I think I've got some good possibilities of it already in a couple of places. They're reading them. Who knows the differences? I've pointed out a billion times over my career, and yes and no is just. Uh, thinner than a human hair difference that I got Total Recall made, Alien made Minority Report took 8 years nobody wanted to make it until Spielberg and Cruz did everybody else said no you go to the prettiest girl in the dance, yeah I'm in We were. that's it, (laughs) 8 years I got turned down on on 
Minority Report. Wow. Huh. That's, it's, it's amazing that it, it takes so long sometimes yeah. for, for a good yeah, film to be made. Yeah, and that was a script made. that, you know, it had to be good enough to get them both to commit. That's the highest level, lighter director you can get. Mm-hmm. And even though I went everywhere with it, Fox bought it from me. They tried to get other actors and directors. They couldn't quite get anybody. They gave up on it. They said, I'm sorry, it's never going to be made in your lifetime. <laughs> and finally, just by luck, another piece of luck, I... Uh, it happened that somebody got it to Tom Cruise, and he loved it, and he called Spielberg, and Spielberg loved it, and suddenly, okay, they call Fox, we'll co-finance it with you, Spielberg directed, Tom will start. Yeah, yeah, those two names right there will get you. <laughs> yeah, I got the you. money overnight after eight years of everybody saying, no, nah, I don't think yeah. it's good enough. Wow, geez, that, that, that's that's amazing. Uh, yeah. Ron, I, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's okay. been fascinating. Yeah, good talking to you. A big thank you going out to Ron Shusette, screenwriter of Alien Minority, Poor Total Recall. Just so many different great films that he has given us over the years, and I'm sure we're going to have some more coming our way. And uh, just thank him so much for taking the time to talk to us here at On Screen and Beyond. Well, let's see here. What do we got to tell you about? If you're on Facebook, be sure to like us. And if you want to listen to all the past episodes of On Screen and Beyond, go to onscreenandbeyond.com. And go to our rerun section, and you can find so many different people, uh, directors, musicians, uh, rock stars, uh, Oscar winners, uh, Emmy winners. It just goes on and on and on. And I'm sure you can look through that list. You're going to find somebody there who you'd like to hear what they they did and how they did it and what they're doing and what's coming up next for them. It's just, just a lot of fun to listen to those things. As I said, uh, I just got back from California. And I uh, was at the California Independent Film Festival and had a lot of a lot of great films there, a lot of good times. And uh, I got a couple of interviews there uh, that uh, I did the moderating for a conversation with Connie Stevens and a conversation with Don Wells. And uh, we were able to record those, and we're going to use them in a future episode here at On Screen and Beyond. So everybody gets a chance to listen. We had a lot of fun. I had With Don, I had a lot of a uh, couple of people come down and serenade her singing the theme song from Gilligan's Island, and then we took a picture of it and sent it, they, you know, so they get their picture with her and everything. So it was a lot of fun. We had a great time, so uh, really enjoyed that. So what do you say? If you have an uh, email that you would like to send me or a suggestion of a guest, send it to me at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com. Love to hear from you, hear your suggestions. And that's it. That's a wrap for this week. So until next week, when we once again take you on screen and beyond, I'm Brian Zemrak. Take care. Thank you.